and welcome back to Music for PhDs. This podcast is sponsored by Encoda, the home of digital sheet music. Well, it's hard to believe, but this is the final episode for season one. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed getting to know these composers as much as I have. And I hope you've enjoyed seeing my visual interpretations of their music. On that note, I will be having an art show of all the works coming up on February 28th in Calgary. So stay tuned for details or visit my website or Instagram. My guest today is Alexina Louie, who was recently awarded the 2019 Molson Prize. Alexina has been composing music for a very long time, and we actually had a really hard time winnowing down which piece to talk about for this episode. One of the things Alexina is known for is composing piano sheet music for students. So if you took piano lessons as a kid, you probably learned on all the standard old dead white man stuff. But Alexina is one of the few composers to create new contemporary music for small hands and developing pianists. She's made tons and tons of music, but my favorite is a comic opera starring Colin Mockery. It's about raking the leaves. Music for Heaven and Earth is the piece we finally settled on, and it was inspired by astronauts. So Dr. Kate is back to talk about interstellar music. What was the first instrument in space? What does space sound like? If no one can hear you scream in space, then why do astronauts need hearing protection? All this and more in the season finale of Music for PhDs, the art project disguised as a podcast. How, how did you get into composing? What kind of made you decide that you wanted to write your own music as opposed to playing someone else's? I loved playing other people's music. Um, and I was a pianist. And I studied piano uh, for many, many, many years. But um, I also studied composition, but I didn't feel like a composer. I felt like a student studying composition. My composition professor was the one that suggested that I study composition um, uh, at graduate school. So I chose crazy wild Southern California in the 1970s and was just thrown into a completely different world. Uh, I was still playing the piano at that point. I was playing the piano and as a graduate student, I was playing like crazy, practicing like mad, and I hurt my wrist. So all the creativity that I put into playing the piano, that energy had to go somewhere. It's so interesting that you went into composing and you had this sounds like a little bit of imposter syndrome, just you were didn't quite feel like a composer yet. When when did you start to feel like you were a composer? Was it after that injury when you were forced to kind of give it no, your No, my music still uh, wasn't individualistic. Uh, there were there, there was definitely something about it that was different. It had to do with self-expression. And I hadn't found a way to really express myself well, whereas I learned how to express myself well in the great masterworks of the past. I wrote some pieces as a student that were on the 
well on the road to expressing who I was. But when I graduated, I didn't feel I had my own voice. I wasn't writing music a lot. I was very, very slow at composing. And I was thrown into a completely different world from my studies at UBC. I learned a lot from being at that school. <clears throat> I learned how to listen in a different way. Yeah. We did meditations through sound. And so I just learned how to meditate. That really had a big effect on me. I knew I was onto something, but I didn't know what it was. When I graduated, I moved to Los Angeles and I started teaching. And I stopped writing music. Okay, put a pause on it. Because I didn't feel that I had anything individualistic to say. I think a lot of, a lot of creative people, they, they yes, have that moment, yeah. Yes, and I didn't feel that I wanted to just keep writing music that didn't represent me. <clears throat> I realized that I had to find a way to pull myself as a human being, as, a, as an entity on this earth, and combine that with all of my Western music art training. So during those years, I researched Asian music. I read Asian poetry and uh, folk stories mm -hmm. and... Sounds like a real like immersion. And then after that, what I was, what I wanted to do was bring the flavor of, of the Asian side of my heritage with the Western side of my studies. And, but when you put two disparate things together, in order for it to be meaningful, you can't just do it superficially. So we grew up in a household that had, where we had lots of Chinese food, and you know we went to you know those big Chinese banquets, and we went to Chinese New Year, and so the Chinese Lion Dance was something that I grew up with, and I started asking my father, what mm -hmm. what is what is this ritual about? And then I thought, okay, maybe one of these years I will take the Lion Dance, which means something to me, which is a lot of gongs and mm -hmm. drums, and it's loud and. And I, I took a tape recorder one New Year's and followed the lion up and down Pender Street. And I kept that recording, not knowing what I would do with that sound, but it was important to me. From that point on, I started trying to write pieces that used both uh, Western and Asian elements. And the first ones that I tried writing were a little bit um, obvious, but I was heading somewhere. I knew that there was some answer here if I could somehow find a way to, to join them together and make something new out of it instead of just pasting one thing on top of another. So it, it really took a number of pieces and a number of years for for it to become part of my my art musical voice. Mm -hmm, your language, yeah, for sure. You do have such a huge repertoire, so this might be kind of like a <laughs> silly question, but do you have a favorite piece? Or is there a piece that's like 
most meaningful to you? It's a little bit like asking if you have a favorite kid. So, <laughs> no, I, I, there, there are pieces that stand out maybe because of the time I wrote them or because of the because of the uniqueness of the of the composition. One of the earliest ones is O Magnum Mysterium in Memoriam Glenn Gould, and it's a piece that I wrote when I heard that he that Glenn Gould had died. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a piece about um, artistic desire. Well, about how art exists for eternity. So yeah, <clears throat> tell me. What's the background to this piece? Music for Heaven and Earth. This piece was commissioned by the Toronto Symphony for a tour of um, the Far East. So it was played in Australia, Singapore, Japan. I think it was played in Taipei as well. Uh, And it was played, it was a Pacific Rim concert. So there was a big circular tour. And uh, so I, I wrote a piece that would start with me as an Asian woman and reach out to the world. But it also was inspired by a book called Home Planet. And it was a book of photos taken uh, by the astronauts Mm. looking back at the Earth from outer space. Beautiful. So it's it's a piece that where I I, uh, tried to reach out and um, some of the the things that the astronauts wrote about what they mm-hmm. felt towards the Earth when they were sure. out there looking back, and the Earth glows in in complete darkness, and it's the only thing that you can see in against the pitch black. And the way that they described it was not like scientists. They were almost like poets mm-hmm. when they talked mm-hmm. about how, how uh, fragile the earth looked yeah. and how we have to really save the planet. River of Stars is um, um, the way the Chinese describe the Milky Way. So, much of my music is inspired by the heavens. It's inspired by the kind of eternity that we receive from looking at the heavens and looking into eternity. I, I love this. Like, I get such a picture of sort of like dual constellations. Like you have these parts that are about looking up at the heavens and then you have these parts that are about being up in space and looking down at Earth. So. I love that kind of yes. dual constellation. Yes, image. so so it's a very optimistic piece. Yeah, for sure. I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Encoda, the Spotify of sheet music. Encoda is a subscription app 
that lets you practice, play, and perform your sheet music. They have literally thousands of titles and millions of pages, all from licensed publisher catalogs. Download Encoda for a free trial on the App Store today. That's N-K-O-D-A. The idea of constellations and the Milky Way really stayed with me as I was listening to this music. I was thinking about filaments and space debris and interstellar streaks of light as I painted. I used a lot of inky blacks and deep blues, which to be honest is kind of my favorite color palette. I also see something of an underwater vibe, with maybe some kelp and seaweed drifting, so it really fits in with the pieces I did to episode 5 and 6 for Jared Miller and Jocelyn Morlock. You can check out all the paintings on my website, and also at the upcoming show in Calgary on February 28th. Now back to Alexina and the lightning round. Are you a coffee drinker or a tea drinker? Coffee. I drink coffee first thing in the morning, and I really look forward to that cup of coffee in the morning. It's my ritual. But at the end of the day, I usually have jasmine tea. Mm. Do you have a, a green thumb, or are you a plant murderer? I'm a bit of both. Um, I plant herbs and tomatoes in the spring. And I have... Um, Varying success with mm. that. Okay. <laughs> uh, but houseplants, I tend to murder. Um, what's the story of your first name? I'm the firstborn in my generation. My father was the firstborn in his generation. And my father's name was Alex. So I was named after my father. Oh, okay. Uh, do you have a favorite season? Probably not winter. Definitely not winter. What's a book you're currently reading? Uh, um, I can't remember the name of it because I just started reading. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. I can't answer that one. We can skip that one. Um, What's your favorite book? Well, there's a book called The Noise of Time. And I'm trying to get everybody to read it. Okay. I, I will read it. What's it about? It, it is a, a book of fiction based on real-life experiences of Shostakovich. But it's not my latest book. For my downtime, I read Mystery by Donna Leone. Okay. And um, they're not deep, but they're really interesting because they all take place in Venice. And if you've been to Venice, you can really you can see Venice mm. in her books. Oh, cool. The first book that she wrote is a book that I read about in the New York Times and it just sounded so interesting. It's um, something like Death in La Fenice. Oh, okay. And it's about the murder of a conductor. Hmm. That's a theme here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're, they're not deep, but they, they take me into a different world when I'm struggling trying to make music. What's next for you? I'm uh, finishing now. Oh, I'm not quite finished. I mean, I'm not finished. <laughs> I should be finished. You're working on My new piece, which is a percussion concerto, and it's going to be premiered in Winnipeg in March. So that's right on my plate as we speak. <laughs> You're current, currently wrestling with. Yes. Awesome. Yes. 
I loved Alexina's description of home planet and how she took inspiration from astronauts. It kind of got me thinking, Dr. Kate, what would you hear in space? <laughs> well, most people would recognize the movie tagline, in space, no one can hear you scream. And that's true. In episode two, we talked about how sound travels to your ears by vibrating the air. So in order for sound to travel, there has to be something with molecules for it to travel through. In space, there's no air to vibrate. So if you plucked a guitar string, you wouldn't hear any sound. However, it's possible that space isn't totally silent. 250 million light years away from Earth, NASA has discovered a supermassive black hole with magnetized gases swirling around its edges. The disturbances that are caused by the magnetic field around the black hole produce waves that are transmitted through the gas. That makes a kind of cosmic sound wave that would be the lowest known sound in the entire universe. It's a B-flat, but about 57 octaves below middle C. That's approximately, and this is a direct quote from NASA, folks, a million billion times deeper than the lowest frequency sound that humans can hear. The lowest sound that human ears can detect has about one oscillation every 20th of a second. The black hole has a cycle of about one oscillation every 10 million years. Okay, so if you could stick your head out into space, you wouldn't hear anything. So how did Chris Hadfield play Space Oddity? Well, there's air inside the International Space Station to transmit vibrations, so you can hear sounds, have conversations, and even play music. The first instrument in space was a harmonica that was smuggled on board by an American astronaut in 1965. Legend has it, he also managed to bring along some scotch and cigarettes. <laughs> I, I feel like being on board the ISS would kind of be like being on a plane for months at a time. Yeah, lots of people love to wear noise-canceling headphones on airplanes because there's constant noise from the engines and from the wind. There's also a lot of ambient noise on the space station, but it's not from wind because there's no air. It's from all the equipment on board. Crew members actually sleep in soundproof pods at night to give their ears a break from the unrelenting background noise they experience all day prolonged exposure to sound, even if the sound isn't very loud, can add up to cause permanent hearing damage. Well, I know loud noises can damage your hearing, but how do quiet sounds do that? In episode three, we talked about the hair cells in your inner ear. When those cells get overworked, they can be damaged and even die. Damaging them depends on two things, loudness and duration. Listening to loud sounds, like jet engines, can cause hearing damage in a very short time. But even everyday sounds, like lawnmowers and city traffic, can add up over time, and cumulatively, that exposure causes damage too. Scientists haven't figured out how to regenerate dead hair cells yet, so that means that the damage is permanent. Can hearing aids help? Definitely. Hearing aid technology is advancing fast, and now it can be customized to every person's different needs, 
but there are still some pretty big weaknesses. Hearing aids are good at amping up human speech, which is what the average person needs help with the most. However, they're pretty bad at handling music. Speech has a narrow range of frequencies compared to the wider range of sounds used in music. So to perceive music well, you need to be able to process a wider range of frequencies than is included in the average hearing test. Most digital hearing aids have to compress music to fit it into the narrower frequency range they're built for, and the result is really unpleasant. This is a sound clip that's been compressed, similar to what a hearing aid would do. That sounds terrible. Yeah. Right now, a lot of people just take their hearing aids out when they want to listen to music, even though it means hearing less of it. So the moral of the story is be sure to protect your hearing. Once it's gone, you can't get it back. Well, that brings us to the close of season one. And I have a big list of people to thank. First of all, thank you to all the composers for giving so generously of their time letting me ask lots of very basic non-musician questions and just generally allowing me access into their heads and their music. I also want to thank Miranda Stan for helping me out with social media and marketing these last few weeks and the entire Beakerhead crew for lots of feedback, moral support, and fun times. In particular, a huge thank you to Dr. Kate, who spent eight weekends on Skype with me, drafting and recording the science segments. I also want to thank Elizabeth Blair from the podcast Listening to Ladies. If music for PhDs has sparked any interest in contemporary composers, then I highly recommend this podcast, which focuses on women and non-binary composers. I got a lot of inspiration from Elizabeth's podcast, and she was also kind of a fairy godmother to me, answering lots of questions and providing tons of helpful advice. So definitely go check her work out. I want to thank Encoda for their sponsorship support and Two House Brewery for hosting the upcoming art show. So on that note, the art show. It's coming up on Friday, February 28th, and will be at the Two House Brewery in Calgary. Come for the art, stay for the beer. I hope to see you there, but if not, my final thank you goes out to you, the listeners. From the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for listening to Music for PhDs, the art project disguised as a podcast.